I'm going to offer a prayer, and the, but I'm going to tell you what we're going to do here, and then we'll do it. Um, you cannot read 6, Hebrews chapter 6, without the last little bit of chapter 5. And I think I told you last week that we were reading chapter 5, and there's a little piece, this change of voice. Whoever divided up the chapters, they must have had something else going on. I'm sure it was Holy Spirit inspired, but it can be a little bit confusing. Um, so, the, I'm going to read a couple of sentences from chapter 5. That will not be on the screen. It's just a reminder of, of where the author is going, and then we'll head into this passage. But I want to tell you something about this passage. Um, this, and next, this chapter and next chapter are two of the most debated chapters, what the, meaning is, what the meanings are, why they're there. Um, very, not divisive like culturally, but theologically. For example, um, Calvin, who we're a Reformed tradition church, and so John Calvin wasn't the, the, the first of the Reformers, but he in Geneva, you know, he, and a bunch of people kind of came alongside, and this covenant theology is kind of the way we, we look at the scriptures. And then Arminius was a contemporary of his, and he, he kind of went the, in the other direction. Calvin had a bunch of people that were scared to death of losing their salvation, that we're, we're going to not do anything because if we do something, we mess it up, we might lose our salvation. And Calvin said, no, 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 you are secure. You're good. You're the elect. You're all, don't worry about it. Now go out there with boldness and live for Christ. Arminius had a bunch of people that were like, man, we can do anything we want because grace will prevail. We are forgiven. We'll always be forgiven. Jesus made the sacrifice once for all. So no matter what we do now, we can, we're going to be fine. And he's like, "Uh uh-uh, got to be careful. You can mess it up. You can lose it. So if Calvin had Arminius' audience and Arminius had Calvin's audience, they might have had similar things to say to their audience. The author here in, in Hebrews is saying to his people, you better be careful because you can lose it. And I just got to be honest, there's no one that can go to the scriptures without any preconceived ideas. You can be objective, but you can't. So Calvinists and and, and, and people that follow kind of the Arminius way can debate this passage and come to completely different conclusions. I just want to be honest with you about that. Um, I, think, I, th- I think I've got a really good handle on it. I've been working on it for about three weeks and uh, pretty excited. But at the same time, I just want to acknowledge up front that if you hear what I have to say about this, this section from uh, verse four through six, and you disagree, okay. It's, it, it's not a salvific issue, but the warning is, the warning says we need to be faithful and fruitful, plain and simple. So what this author does here is he goes, you guys are babies, not you. You guys are babies. You better watch out. You might end up in an irre, irrepentable, un, you, you're not going to make it back. But I believe in you because God is faithful. Let's go. Just a, it's, a, it's kind of a weird. So think of a, if you're if you ever played football when you were younger. Think of a locker room when you're not doing well after the first half, and the coach just tears you up, and then shifts the voice and goes, "But you can do it." That's kind of what that's kind of what the author is doing here. So it's more important than football, but it's kind of what he's doing. So let's pray, and we'll get right to it. Lord, we bless you, we thank you, we praise you for who you are. We thank you for your word. And we thank you that it, it, it reminds us, at least me on a regular basis, that, that I do not have everything figured out. 
You are an infinite, omnipotent, omniscient God. And you give us, you give us the ability to see through a mirror dimly. So Lord, I pray that when we finish up today with the message, that we see a little, with a little bit more light, some of this confusion. But Lord, don't let me get caught up in the confusion and forget to talk about just how encouraging this passage actually is. So Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive whatever you want us to say. This is not my message for them, it's your message for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. So back into chapter 5, just a few verses. The author is starting to talk about this priesthood of Melchizedek, which we'll get to next week. But he says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. He's setting up this next chapter right there. He's saying, I want you to be mature. I want you to, to, to be willing to face hardships. I want you to be capable of seeing good and evil in the world around you, not just what's popular, but what is important. And then he goes on. Therefore, let us leave the, the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God, instructions on baptism and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And then he goes back to that, let us leave the elementary teachings and God permitting will do so. Here's the tough, here's the tough section for reformers. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they are crucifying the son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for for those whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God, but land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So when I, I became a Christian when I was 15 years old, and the first, um, the first Bible study that wasn't on the bus on the way home from camp. So the first time we were meeting in someone's living rooms, called a, a group with Young Life called Campaigners, and it's just a discipleship group. They're studying Hebrews. And the very first passage, so some of my friends that had gone to camp, they, they came to Christ and then immediately went back to what they were doing before. I was reading this in the, in the Living Bible. And basically, it, Living Bible is a paraphrase. But it said, if you, if you know Jesus and then you fall away, you're doomed. And I, I had an existential panic about my friends. So this passage has been one that I cannot stand and love and, and it has bothered me since I was 15 years old. Now, quick story. There's the, one of the theologians I was reading last week, um, he was at a big conference. I don't know that they would host conferences like this in San Francisco anymore, but um, big Bible, like 
New Testament, they're going to talk a lot of Greek and that kind of thing. Um, this guy's an expert. His PhD is on the, uh, the center chapters here in the book of Hebrews. And they're sitting on a cable car or a streetcar. And so there's two guys here, him, and then they found another theologian, believe it or not, uh, walking down the street who jumped on the car. And so they're having an open discussion about this particular passage on the streets of San Francisco out loud with all the other people around. And two of the people said, yep, if you have salvation and you backslide, you lose it, you're done. One of them was like, I ah, know that just means they never had it to begin with. And then another had a whole, whole completely different theory. This is hotly contested, but I want to read, uh, and this isn't going to make it all better, but I want to read the last sentence of that, of that really difficult thing and then paint a picture for you. They are crucifying the Son of God all over again by subjecting him to public disgrace. We are so far removed from this, from, from Jesus' crucifixion, that we forget the scandal that it was and the shame that some of the new Christians felt that their Savior had been mocked. So picture Jesus on the cross and picture the, all the people around. You've got the Sadducees, the Pharisees, you've got, you've got the, the disciples, you've got the criminals on the cross, you have others. What are they doing while Jesus is dying? Hurling insults at him. You saved others, save yourself. Oh, you're, king, you're, you're, the, you're, the, you're the son of God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Call down angels. So they, they crucified him and then they mocked him. And some of the people that were there throwing insults were the same people one week prior actually not even a week, five days prior, we're saying, Hosanna in the highest. There's Palm Sunday, the crowd, the same crowd, some of the same people are people that, that are at the foot of the cross scorning Jesus. We all know by reading the Gospels that there were people that followed Jesus for a certain period of time, and then when he showed them what the cost was, they bailed on him. They had a taste. They saw miracles. They had an inner, or they had a personal encounter with Jesus himself. And when he said to them, it's going to get ugly, they went, then I'm out. There was a book in, I believe, 2006 called Friend, Fan, or Follower, um, pastor down in Louisville, Kentucky. And he described that kind of idea. So um, a fan is a fanatic, right? So you've got people that are they're going, to be, they're going to be with Jesus when it's good. And then when the culture changes or when it gets difficult, they bail. You've got a fanatic. Just you, you root for your team no matter what, but you don't really have any say in what the, what, the, what the end of the game is going to be, right? I don't know why we get so uptight about what a 23-year-old would do on a football field, but we do. And then there's a follower, someone who says, yes, no matter what, come what may, I am all in. You have my whole life. I would argue, and there'll be theologians that disagree, I would argue that that's who he's talking about. He's reminding the Hebrew people that, look, there have been plenty that say I'm all in, and then they bail. It's all in, then they bail. And if they can see Jesus, and they can have a taste of the heavenly riches, if they can actually understand that God sent the Holy Spirit to live within us and walk away, they are so hard of heart, they're not coming back. 
In fact, some would argue that that's like the, the unforgivable sin that Jesus talks about, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to be so hard of heart that you see something that is of the devil and you say it's of God, or so hard of heart that you see something of God, Jesus, and what all the miracles he was doing, and say that that's of the devil. Remember when they blamed him for, uh, for working by the authority of Beelzebub? If you're that hardened of heart, you're not coming back. This is what's known as apostasy. If you, if, 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 this happened, this happened to almost all of the apostles. They're all in, and they were asked, they were demanded, they were ordered to deny Christ. And if they would have denied Christ, they would have saved their lives. One was boiled in oil because he would not, he would not say no to the gospel. So that's the warning part. He's like, guys, you got to stop being babies. Stop, stop counting on everyone else to spoon feed you. You have to know this. You have to study this. You have to pray this. You have to be in community with each other. And how will you know that your salvation is secure? There will be fruit. And how do we know that God is faithful? Because God made a promise and he swore an oath to himself. So there's two ways. God has never, never broken a promise. God cannot lie. So there's two ways that he assured us that we're secure. So we need not be afraid. We should be bold. He goes on. So this is right after that, the, the land that might be burned. He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, so if he really thought they were all going to hell, I don't think he's going to call them brethren. We are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by something greater than themselves, and that oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. But God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us. I just, I'm sorry. I'm looking right at it, trying to get that wording right, and then drifted. I'm going to start with that, start with that paragraph again because I won't find my place. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and, put an end to, and it puts an end to all argument because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose, very clear to their heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters in the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we'll get into Melchizedek more next week. 
He's given them a, a gut check. Folks, if you're going to be lazy, if you're going to wait for everyone else to spoon feed you, if you're just going to uh, float around like a wave on the sea in the winds, if you're just going to, to whatever else is going on, you're just going to let it kind of take you and move you, then you're not following Jesus. But if there is fruit, if you've been patient, if you've, if you've actually thanked God when, when all kinds of things that are difficult, the troubles of this world, when they come, if you can actually be thankful in the midst of all this, that is fruit. And we can be confident in the fact that God has better things, not just for me, not just for us, but for the world as a whole. If God was done with us, we would be done. If God didn't still have something to offer Western civilization, Asia, Australia, New Zealand, South America, Central America, Hispania, if he didn't have something, if, if he didn't still have plans for them, we'd all be done. The end would have come. Those that do not know him would have been annihilated or they would have gone to hell, whichever version of that you, you, you hold to. And he would be reigning right here, right now. But he's not reigning right here, right now. He is in the heavenlies. We talked about that a little bit last week. He's always interceding for you, for me, for us. He, he, he's pleading our case before the Father, and he's pleading the Father's case through the Holy Spirit to us. But if he, weren't, if he were done with us, we would quite literally be done. But because he's not here on earth, the new heavens and the new earth, reigning, and we are reigning alongside of him, which we're told in scriptures that we will first judge the angels and we will be heirs to the throne of God. Since we're not doing that right now, then God is not done. He has more in store. And he promised Abraham, and he swore an oath by himself, that all nations, all people groups will be blessed through the line of Abraham. And you know who's in the line of Abraham? Jesus. And you know who salvation is open to now? All who would receive it. Do you know people who have not yet received it? When they look at your life, do they see God? That's what this author is saying. Are you living your life in such a way that if other people see you, they have a picture of who God is. Because we have a high priest who understands all that we've gone through. And we have a high priest that's always interceding on our behalf because we have a God who took on flesh to walk with us, talk with us, know us, and love us, and to restore us in the end to the place where we started, Eden, where earth and the heavens meet. And humanity is the family of God under the reign of Christ. How are we doing? I look at the world. Sometimes I say, come Lord Jesus. And other times I go, am I going to be arrested one day because I believe in the scriptures? I think I've told you that before. A friend of mine, like when you sit on a plane as a pastor and someone goes, they're talking, talking and talking, and then they're like, so what do you do? So I have one buddy, he's Catholic. He wears a great big crucifix. 
wooden cross right here with Jesus hanging on it and holds a big Catholic Bible that's all embossed. If you get on, if you're on uh, uh, one of those airlines where you just line up and then you just find a seat. So he sits there with that big Bible and he hangs that big cross. He sits in the aisle and then he makes eye contact with everyone that comes in. (laughs) Always gets a seat next to him empty. (laughs) And another friend of mine, his name's Glenn, um, lives out in California now, but I was telling him about a time I was on a plane and some guy, he, he is railing on everything I stand for. And then he goes, and I'm trying to be polite, you know, just, to, I don't know this guy. And it, we're on the, I was on the way back from Denver, and um, the only thing he talked about that I had any interest in at all was golf, but the rest of it is just, a, I just offended. And then he goes, so, so what do you do? Well, let's just put it this way. What I do is illegal in a lot of countries, and one day it may be illegal here. But I'll ask you the same question I asked you several months ago. If Christianity were illegal, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you of the sin of Christianity? Not exactly, but pretty close. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Are you so faithful and diligent, not lazy in the upkeep of your faith, but participating with God in the work of sanctification where he's making you more the person he created you to be, that should produce Fruit, not thistles, not thorns, not weeds, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I'm not accusing. I'm, I'm asking you the same question that the author of Hebrews is asking the Hebrew people who are now being challenged to walk back toward a failed and corrupted priesthood instead of toward the high priest that is a priest for all eternity. And the gravitational pull of our culture wars wants to, wants, I'm not going to use that word, wants to pull you toward what everybody else wants you to think and to be and to say. I'm not talking politics. I'm talking godlessness. And we have to stand firm. Later on in Hebrews, it tells us, he says it in a, in a way right here, but he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess For the one who promised is faithful. He's faithful. You can be confident in better things. Yes, you may go through unthinkable things. But in the end, God is God and we are not. And you know the God of the universe. Praise God that he made himself known. And praise God that he called you to be his. That he has chosen you as one of his children And if you've ever had one of your children kind of deny you or betray you, you know what that does. He's saying, how much more will God experience? And I don't know that God can can experience that kind of thing, but we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Right here he says, "If if you've messed up that bad, done with you. But those who are still hanging on, hang on. And we'll get to this passage in a couple of weeks, but... That hold unswerving to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. When my son Cam was little, he would, and I'm sure you've all done this. I'll try to get over here so you guys can see. He would sit on my foot and grab my leg. That's holding unswervingly. Like, I'm not letting go. In fact, I'm tackling you, daddy. I'm tackling you. Now, God, what can he, he can just flick us away like we're nothing. But, but that's what he wants from us. 
That's what the author of Hebrews is, re-encouraging his people. Like, look, you should, be, you should know this stuff by now. You should be teaching others this stuff by now. You're not, but I'm confident that you will. So, before your head hits the pillow tonight, or your toothpaste hits the toothbrush, ask the Lord, where would you like me to be more fruitful? How would you like me to participate more in the work you're doing in me. For he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And if you get caught up in all this, this stuff, this is it once saved, always saved, or can you go back and forth and be baptized over and over and over again? I'll just remind you what Paul said. Let us work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works and wills and acts in us according to his good purpose. So who is it? Is it me or is it God? The answer is yes. And that's not, a, that's not a wiggle. The answer is yes. We know that we're secure in our salvation because we cooperate with God in the work he's doing in us, for us, and through us. And sometimes we stop within us and for us. That's what the author of Hebrews is speaking to. Don't forget the through us. Let's pray. Lord, again, thank you for difficult passages. Thank you that your warnings are clear. If we just look at the Sermon on the Mount, we think of it as the, primarily as the Beatitudes, but you, you call us out. You love us enough to tell us the truth and to use all the authors of the New Testament to both encourage and sometimes even provoke but the provocation is so that we will be able to change. Lord, give us courage to change, to cooperate with the, in the work that you're doing for us, in us, and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.